Great, let's read together, shall we, from John chapter 18. Hey, good to be here this morning. I hope that uh, you appreciated my attempts to bring a bit more life and variety into the service last week. But, uh, anyhow, I uh, worked out afterwards that the only time I've ever done a stunt like that in my life was at Northway Evangelical Church in Oxford back in 1979. So I'm not proposing to make a habit of it now. Anyhow. Thank you for coping with that, and let's see if we can get through it without anything like that this week. So, John chapter 8, let's read from verse 1. This has got nothing much to do with harvest. <laughs> so we've got two themes to, 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 to um, tie together this morning. First, it's, it's our harvest service, but also, we're going through the life of Jesus, and we've reached the point where Jesus is just about to be arrested. Very different. So, John 18, verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, What is it you want? Who is it you want? Sorry, Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And let's skip on a few hours to uh, verse 28. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken, indicating the kind of death he was going to die, would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Oh, am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your chief priests that handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to put to my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You're a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And one more little reading from Hebrews chapter 12, just to add to the context here. So Hebrews chapter 12, 
I mean, part of a letter that's written to people who are going through persecution. Uh, they're facing t- tough times. And uh, uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, look, we've got lots of great examples from the past. Heroes who lived in a, a powerful way. And there's one example that stands out above every other. He says in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Okay, um, let's get into this passage then and see what we can, we, we can make of it. First of all, advert again for tonight, which probably will happen this week. I was in an emergency this time uh, when it was happening last week. I didn't get out of A&E, actually, until your evening service was over. So, you know, for people who have to wait in Torbay Hospital, I now have great sympathy. But anyhow, uh, the church... Christianity's worst advert. We'll be talking tonight about whether why it is that the church is often one of the big things that people raise as an objection against Christianity. We'll see how justified it is, whether the, the charges that are laid against Christians are right or wrong, and we'll also uh, say, well, what can we say back to people? What kind of arguments can we raise in defence of the Christian faith? So, so tonight's great question. The church, Christianity's worth, worst advert. For a moment now, though, let's look at this passage and uh, what it has to say to us. We've been looking at Jesus' final week over the last few episodes in this series, and we've looked at what's happening day by day as Jesus goes through the last week of his life. And uh, we've reached Friday, the day when Jesus is going to be not just arrested, but hustled through the trial and crucified at the end of the uh, end of the day. And uh, last week, remember, we were talking about the, 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 the uh, preparation for that, the Last Supper in the upper room, and uh, we talked about the, the, the various factors uh, involved in that, the farewell of it. We talked also about uh, why Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus and what that can tell us about our own Christian lives, and we talked about the new commandment that Jesus gave. Uh, at the time of the Last Supper. It was set in a standard. There was a new motive behind it, a new power running through it, and a new relationship at the heart of it, plus a new reminder in the bread and the wine of what this is all about. But now Jesus has left the upper room. He's gone round to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's arrested. What can we make of that? Once back in the distant past, I was a football referee. I didn't have all the technical stuff that this guy did, but when I was at university, one of my friends had been a referee at school before he came up to college, and he, he wanted to recruit new referees, and I said, yeah, okay, I'll have a go. And so for quite a while, I was a referee in the Oxfordshire Amateur League. Uh, you got to referee pub teams, uh, village teams, um, uh, university, college teams, uh, groups like that, but it was a proper, I was a grade three FA referee, fully qualified. And you know what? It can be a really lonely job, especially at the level I was at, because you didn't have the technology, you didn't have earpieces in your ear and stuff like that. You didn't even have linesmen most games. Uh, you just had to organise the whole thing yourself. And uh, out there in the middle, it's a pretty lonely time. And if you get it wrong, then this kind of thing can happen. Okay, this is Gaelic football, which is not... Uh, but what happened, what's uh, going on there with the guy on the left is that he's a referee, and... Um, 
Being Irish, the crowd have uh, expressed their uh, opposition to him pretty, pretty um, uh, volubly, and now he's got to work for the changing room, and he's got the, the police trying to shield him from the spectators who've run onto the pitch, pitch, and it's just not a good experience. I never had that. Never happened to me. But I did have one or two games where people were not totally pleased with my decisions. In fact, I remember the day I gave up. It was at the end of a game where I really had not done a good job. I remember I was walking off the pitch thinking, well, that was a stinker, that was really bad. I got everything wrong in this game. And one of the players in the losing side ran up behind me and he said, well done, ref. Best ref we've had all season. <laughs> I thought, this is crazy. This is stupid. It's so, so, so much a matter one person's opinion against another. I'm giving up. So I did give up. Now, if you're a referee nowadays, especially in a top-class match, there's something that can help you. And we've just seen it introduced recently, VAR. What's happening here is that the referee has made a decision and a little voice has said in his ear, you ought to go and take a look at that one. Not sure you got it right. And so he's gone over to the, the pitch side uh, camera and meanwhile on the big screens around the, the, the pitch, this uh, explanation has popped up of what exactly he's doing. And uh, the whole thing is being orchestrated by people sitting in a room quite a distance away full of screens and electrical equipment that helps them do all sorts of things to review the decisions the referee is making. Like this, for example, is this player uh, who scores a brilliant goal offside when it is? Obviously he is because he's over the line so the goal doesn't land. And the referee sometimes has to change his mind, walk back from the screen and say, okay, because of VAR, uh, no goal. And uh, he's being judged, the judge of the game. The person in authority over the game has someone who is judging him and the decisions he's making. Now that's what happened, it seems to me, when Jesus was tried. In the trials of Jesus, the judge was judged. You might say trials, he was only arrested once, wasn't he? He was arrested in the garden and he put him through a trial and they condemned him to death. Are you saying that there were multiple trials going on at the same time? Haven't you got him confused with Donald Trump or something? And the answer is no. Uh, there were lots of things that happened that night. It was a pretty weird night. He was arrested and uh, tied up, taken bound uh, into the city. He was interviewed by Annas, the former chief priest. He was uh, interrogated by Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, Annas' son-in-law. He was tried by the council. He was punched and spat on. He was questioned by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. He was sent to Herod Antipas, uh, the, the local king. He was mocked by Herod's men. He was returned to Pilate. And finally, he was sentenced. Then he was lashed and crowned with thorns and sent out and died. That's a lot to happen in just a few hours. And actually, there wasn't one trial. There were three. Let me just show you how it happened. This is the map of Jerusalem. And uh, down at the bottom there, that's the upper room. Uh, where uh, Jesus celebrated uh, his, the, 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 the Passover with his disciples, as we saw last week. He then went with them out of the city and went round to a garden that he often seemed to have gone to on the other side of the city called the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he prayed. We haven't read the story of Gethsemane, but it's there in the Gospel. You can read it for yourself. Uh, there's a version of it in all four Gospels. And uh, there Jesus uh, goes through absolute agony. And he prays that famous prayer. Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And Jesus is clearly struggling with what he knows is going to happen to him. Taking on board the full horror of it. And uh, yet 
he gets the determination to, to keep on going. Well, after that, he's arrested. People turn up, Judas leads them there, and uh, a group of soldiers and temple guards are there with the Jewish leaders. They arrest him and they take him back into the city. That uh, red dot there is for the first place they stop. He wasn't tried there, but that was the house of Annas, the former high priest, who was the big figure behind the scenes still in Jerusalem in those days. And he controlled an awful lot of what went on and made a lot of money out of it as well. He was behind the whole financial system of the temple. And his palace lay on the way down to Caiaphas' house. And so, and because he was such a powerful figure, Jesus was taken there, questioning by Annas. Nothing much happened, though. And eventually he was taken on to the house of Caiaphas down in the bottom corner there. Caiaphas uh, uh, and the Jewish leaders... Uh, met and, uh, 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 and put Jesus through his first trial and they uh, well let's let's get, zoom in on it a little bit this is where the first trial happens in Caiaphas house down in the corner and uh, they decide that Jesus is guilty but they can't condemn him to death the Jews are not allowed to do that it has to be a Roman who makes that decision so they send him up it would appear to Herod's fortress when the, the, the governor, Pontius Pilate, was in Jerusalem, he stayed in Herod's old palace. No, not the Herod you're going to hear about in a moment, but King Herod, who died in 4 BC, the great Herod who built the temple and all the rest of it, he left a massive palace behind, and that seems to have been Pilate's quarters when he was in Jerusalem. So Jesus was sent there. And Pilate was got up from bed in the middle of the night and told, you've got a case to try. He uh, interviews Jesus briefly and uh, decides that because Jesus comes Galilee, ah, actually, he's under the jurisdiction of the king of Galilee, who just happens to be staying in the road, and his name is Herod Antipas. And so Jesus is sent to Herod Antipas. Antipas is delighted to see him, because he's wanted to meet Jesus for a very long time, the Gospels tell us. And he hopes that he can get Jesus to do a miracle for him. Antipas was a very superstitious guy. When he first heard about Jesus, he thought, oh no, this is John the Baptist, come back from the, de the dead. I'm doomed, I'm doomed, we're all doomed. And uh, it wasn't Jesus, it wasn't John the Baptist reincarnated, but uh, uh, that's the kind of guy that Herod Antipas was. He believed all sorts of strange things, and he thought he might be able to get Jesus to do a miracle. Didn't happen. And so Herod Antipas, in disgust, mocked Jesus, put him in a fancy robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And Pilate realised he was going to have to deal with this. And so the second trial, as you can see, the second purple circle is Herod Antipas that, and that trial. The third judge that Jesus had that night was Pontius Pilate. And we've all heard the story of how Pilate at the end of that just washed his hands and said, I'm having nothing to do. This guy is innocent as far as I can see. I want him to go free. And he wasn't allowed to do that. This is the place probably where that final trial took place. Herod's palace, you can see at the front there uh, with a big open space. But as we've read in John's Gospel, the Jewish leaders didn't want to go into the palace because that would have made them ceremonially unclean on the Passover weekend, biggest weekend of the year. And so they wouldn't do that. And uh, we now believe that there was a big open space, a public square just outside the palace. And in that public square, uh, the uh, judgment seat was set up. And so right there in the open air with all sorts of people watching, Pilate tried Jesus. A big crowd uh, appeared, and uh, some of them were encouraged by the, the, the chief priests and the authorities to be there, kind of rent a mob stuff, and they brought pressure to bear on Pilate so that Jesus would be uh, condemned to death.
So, we'll see what happened in the trials in a moment, but first, we've got to talk about Gethsemane. <coughs> when Jesus left the city and went out to the garden to pray, it was one of the most important moments of his life. And while the disciples slept, because he asked them to stay awake, and they kept on falling asleep while they were there, they had a tough day, and they didn't understand what was happening. But while they slept, Jesus was winning an important battle. Jesus prayed to his father in Gethsemane, and faced up to the full horror of what was just arriving. He became extremely sorrowful, it says uh, in the Gospels, when he got there. And it, it seems to me that although he knew, I had known for weeks, that he was heading towards this disaster, he was going to be arrested, he was going to go through one of the most cruel deaths that uh, has ever been used as part of a legal system, despite the fact that he knew this was coming, he suddenly realised it the moment's arrived. This is the night before the GCSEs, you know. This is a time when it all becomes real. And for Jesus, it was a tremendous battle. And he won it. And the reason he was able to go through his trial and go to the cross, it seems to me, was because of Gethsemane. This is where he fought the battle. A human nature that shrank away from the pain and the grief he was to, to, to suffer. And the worst part of the whole thing, not the nails, not the blood, not the crown of thorns, but being separated from his father as he hung on the cross, dying to you and me. He literally went through hell on the cross, and we'll talk about that next time. But uh, um, hell, the definition of hell is, every, is, is the presence of God being taken away from you. And when you think about it, it's the presence of God, our creator, the one whose faithfulness, whose care, whose love is reflected in harvest every year. It's the presence of God in our lives brings light and life and joy to human life. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning, even if we don't realise it. And once you take God's presence away, there is nothing left behind. That is literally hell. And so Jesus went through that suffering for us on the cross. In Gethsemane, he won the battle with himself and, and said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, and just went for it. So, what do we notice about Gethsemane? Let's get that out of the way first. I think there are three things you have to notice. The first thing is the agony that Jesus went through. This was one of the most terrible moments of Jesus' life. And one of the things he says there uh, brings that home to you. Very sorrowful is the soul of me even to death. Uh, literally. That's the Greek uh, of the New Testament. And there are some interesting words there. Very sorrowful. Perilupos. That means I'm completely encompassed by sorrow, hemmed in by my grief. That Greek particle, peri, you know, we see it in words like perimeter in English. Perimeter is, is the, the extreme edge of something, something that runs all the way around. If you've got a perimeter fence around your property, that means it goes all the way around. It doesn't miss out a single bit, and everything is enclosed within it. And lupos is the word for grief, and perilupos means grief is all around me. It's all over me. There's no way I can get out of it. There is no joy left any longer. I'm just encompassed by grief. And then you see he says, this is even to death. What does that actually mean? Well, it means this. It means I feel like this is going to kill me. I can't survive this. It feels as if I'm being absolutely crushed under the weight of what's going on. And Jesus went through complete agony because he now realized exactly what he was going to have to do. And it was necessary so that you and I could be forgiven for our sins and come to know God again. So the agony is the first thing to notice. The second thing to notice is the acceptance of the whole thing. 
Jesus won through to a level of calm and uh, uh, self-possession, which is just staggering to see. And you see that in everything that happens when the arresting party arrives. Jesus is able to stay calm in the midst of a, a heaving crowd where people are, are, are shouting and, and, and grabbing him and all kinds of things are going on. And his calmness is such that when they arrive, and as we, we saw in the reading, say, where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He says, I am he. And they all fall back in astonishment. They just didn't expect anybody like that. They expected the Jesus they were coming to arrest to say, oh, he's over there, or to run away, or try to make a deal. Oh, you don't want to arrest me. No, it was somebody else, it wasn't me. And they got none of that. Jesus just standing there, looking at them, as if he was in command of the situation, saying, I'm he, I'm Jesus, what do you want? <laughs> and he was able to do that simply because he'd been through the agony of his prayer a few minutes before. He was able to stand there with Judas. Judas kissed him to point him out to the soldiers so they'd know who to arrest. And instead of recriminations, instead of saying, you dare to kiss me, what kind of brass neck have you got? How can you do that when you're betraying me? You, you got, you've been my, my, my trusted disciple for three years now. We put you in charge of the money for the whole group. What do you think you're doing? Instead of that, he just said, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And I think it was that cool stare of Jesus into Judas' eyes that convinced him Jesus is all he claimed to be. He really is the Son of God. I really have betrayed an innocent man. And I think Judas uh, would uh, turn around in his opinions just at the very moment that he'd betrayed Jesus by the self-possession of Jesus himself. Jesus was so self-possessed he was able to uh, say to his disciples put up your swords, don't fight, don't argue, let's not start a brawl here. He was so self-possessed that when Peter, it had to be Peter, didn't it, sliced off somebody's ear, that's the kind of thing you do, you want to make friends, um, Jesus was able just to heal the man's ear there instantly on the spot. And uh, uh, even at the moment of his arrest, Jesus was still doing good, was still healing people, right through to the end. So the acceptance of the situation by Jesus shows that that battle had been won. And sometimes it's the same for us, isn't it, when we're facing stress or difficulty or temptation or whatever. Don't wait until the last moment to work out what you're going to do. Win the battle beforehand, before the pressures come. Get it right in your mind. Be right with God and then you can take pressures that people would never believe you could simply because... God uh, and your commitment to him is straight in your mind and, and you can do what you need to do. So, the third thing, the agony, the acceptance, the third thing I think you seem to notice in Gethsemane is the arrest. The arrest itself was pretty illegal. And Jesus says three important things uh, as he's arrested, not necessarily in the reading we've had, but if you put the Gospels together, that make it clear what is going on here. Because it was quite common for groups of soldiers and temple guards to be sent out to arrest people who were causing trouble. And Jesus says, first of all, why are you coming here with clubs and swords to arrest me as if I was some kind of rebel, some kind of miscreant? As you can see, I'm not resisting arrest. Why did you do this? Why didn't you come out in the middle of the day in the temple? You've, you've had me around all week. I've been sitting there in the portico of the temple teaching crowds of people. You could have arrested me at any point. Why do it in the middle of the night when, when uh, I, I'm out here? And he's basically saying, this is happening because I'm a rebel. 
You don't need to use violence to subdue me. There's no call for any of that. And then he also says, um, you know, if I called on my father, he would send 12 legions of angels just like that. A legion, by the way, in those days was 6,000 foot soldiers and 700 horsemen. So that is a lot of angels. And uh, Jesus said, you know, I don't need to be here. I don't need to be taking us. I could, if I wanted, summon help. This isn't happening, in other words, because my father is powerless or because he's abandoned me. I have all the resources to get out of this situation if I really wanted to. And then he says something else. He says, this is happening to fulfill the scriptures. The real reason this is happening is because God's plan must work out and the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so he makes it very clear that this arrest is not something that's just an accident. It's not something that's just a plot by wicked people like Judas. <laughs> it's something that God has planned and designed. And the reason he's going into it so willingly is because he recognizes that painful though it is, much though it will cost him, this is something that has to happen if God's plan for the salvation of the world has got to happen. You might think, well, why does God's plan involve Gethsemane? I mean, Jesus could easily have been arrested in the upper room, couldn't he? There are some scholars who think that probably what Judas did, he, he uh, went out to get the official party together to come and arrest Jesus. What Judas did was to go back to the upper room, which is where he left Jesus, and then when Jesus wasn't there, was, ah, I know where he'll be. They've gone out to the garden already. So perhaps he did go to the upper room, but he went to Jesus. Jesus, Jesus had already gone. Why did God allow Gethsemane? I think there are three reasons. First of all, it was for Jesus. The rest of his life, the remaining few hours, were going to be an absolute maelstrom, a whirlwind of activity and shouting and hatred and physical pain as well, as people mocked him and plucked at his beard and put robes on him and crowns of thorns, all, all, all sorts of things. And this was for Jesus. This is where he won the battle, as we said already. And he was prepared for everything that was to come. And God gave him this time of quiet where he could just be in the presence of his father and pray and get ready for what was to come. How do you get ready for a stress like that? Well, for Jesus, there were two things. First was prayer. Prayer can strengthen you and make you ready like nothing else. Second was fellowship. And that's what he was looking for and didn't have because the disciples didn't understand what was going on and they kept falling asleep. And Jesus wakes them up at one point and says, could you not watch with me one hour? And then they fall asleep again. They just didn't realize the significance of what was going on. And I think that says something to us about supporting other people, doesn't it? Prayer is one source of strength when you're going into a battle. But the other source of strength can be the grace of God mediated through your brothers and sisters. And if we see somebody who is facing problems and difficulties that perhaps we can't understand, we've never been there ourselves, but nonetheless we realize are big, then just to be there for them, to give them the, the, the strength and the courage that they need can be so important. As I say, tragically, for Jesus, that didn't happen. And it was simply on the basis of the strength of his relationship with his father that he was able to go ahead into the, the nightmare that was just about to break upon him. So it was for Jesus, but it was for the disciples too. Because although they didn't understand what was going on, 
They did remember all sorts of things that were happening in the garden. And when you put those things together afterwards and you realise what Jesus was taking on, dying on the cross so that the world could be saved, then when they put it together afterwards, it starts to make sense and they start to realise what this whole thing was all about. This was no accident. This was no tragic uh, end to the life of a hero. This was something that was part of God's plan and God's design. And the third thing, it was for us. Because when you read the story of the Garden of Gethsemane, it brings you closer to Jesus. And you come at any other point in Jesus' life, when you see him, not completely in command of the situation as he usually is, when you read the stories about him in the Gospels, not able to second-guess what's happening next, but just facing something that he feels is almost too big for him. Let this pass from me, but your will be done anyway. We get closer to the, the mind and the heart of Jesus, it seems to me, in Gethsemane than we do anywhere else. It helps us see more clearly than anything else does. Okay, that's Gethsemane. Let's talk for just a few minutes then about the three judges who were judged by this whole incident. And we'll see what the verdict is on them. First of all, the Caiaphas. He was a high priest, son-in-law to Annas, who'd been making the high priesthood a paying concern for several years. Annas had been high priest himself for nine years because he was just good at staying in a job. You weren't supposed to get nine years, but he got it. And uh, he used that to build a, a business empire uh, and uh, a political intrigue system that second to none. So when Caiaphas married his daughter, Caiaphas was uh, being groomed as the great successor uh, for Annas. And, and Caiaphas, to be fair, for the rest of his life, was a very wealthy man. And we know that uh, shortly after uh, Jesus was crucified, Caiaphas lost his job. Three years on, he retired and he went off to live in the countryside and farm uh, until the end of his life. And just a few years ago, we found in Jerusalem, uh, on the site of Caiaphas' old house, a bone box, an ossuary. The idea was when you died, uh, they put you in the tomb and uh, the worms would do their business and only your bones would be left behind and they'd come and collect those bones and put them in a special box. And the ossuary of Caiaphas is one of the most opulent and rich and, uh, and finely detailed and carved boxes we've ever found. Clearly, right to the end of his life, he was a very, very wealthy man, buried with full honours and a tremendous reputation. But, uh, he was somebody who did not like Jesus at all. Uh, then there was Antipas, Herod Antipas. He was the ruler of the part of uh, the, 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 the uh, country of, of Israel that lay on the other side of the Jordan, up towards Galilee. And in fact, he was the ruler in Galilee uh, as well. And so Antipas was somebody who uh, had almost come into contact with Jesus several times before. He was interested in Jesus because in Antipas' own region, Jesus was creating quite a storm. And at one stage, the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, listen, you better stop preaching and get out of here because Herod wants to kill you. And it's very likely that he did want to kill Jesus because Jesus threatened his empire. And so now Jesus was in captivity and bound and there in front of Antipas. Antipas was delighted. He wasn't a threat any longer, but it was interesting. If this guy really could do miracles like they said he could, let's make him do one. Then there was Pilate. And Pilate, the Roman governor, had a long military record and a pretty harsh treatment of other people. He was somebody who uh, was not a, a patient man, and he was somebody who had already put to death lots of people who 
didn't really deserve to die just because he was short-tempered. But with Jesus, there was something that stuck in his, his, his throat. He could not put this man to death because he realized that the charges against him were just trumped up. There was no substance to them whatsoever. But like um, uh, James Comer uh, in the U.S. Senate saying this week that the, uh, the uh, um, uh, indictment of Joe Biden was be surrounded by all sorts of evidence, some incredible evidence of the wrongdoing in the Biden family. And so far, I mean, they may next week, but so far they've produced nothing whatsoever. And as Pilate looked through the evidence up against Jesus, he said, there's nothing here. They're creating a storm, they're trying to blacken his name, but there's nothing that, that uh, would actually put him to death. So three different judges, three different situations. Caiaphas was opposed to Jesus because the way he saw Jesus was he's a threat. He threatens my empire. He threatens my country and the good of my country. He threatens the stability we've had under the Romans for a few years. He's got to go. And Caiaphas is the man who said to uh, the Jewish leaders, it's expedient that one man should die for the people. One death and we're out of here. No problem any longer. Let's just rub Jesus out, and then the problem disappears. Antipas was intrigued by Jesus. He wanted to understand who, how this guy had got to the situation he had. How had he built his reputation? Did he do the miracles by some kind of supernatural power, which Antipas believed in? Or was it just tricks? And he saw Jesus as a curiosity, somebody you could play with for a while. He was no danger in the and you could, you could wonder about him. You could possibly get him to give a few interesting things. But he certainly was no, no danger to your life or your lifestyle. Pilate, well, Pilate was perplexed by Jesus. He couldn't make up his mind about him. And he saw Jesus as a mystery. Somebody who clearly had a dignity and a self-possession that just unnerved Pilate. He wasn't bothered by Pilate. He wasn't cowed by the might of Rome or being in a, a law court pleading for his life or, or anything like that. He was just regal. He was a king. And Pilate couldn't understand all of that. So what's the verdict on these three people? Well, let's take the verdict first on Joseph, Ben, Caiaphas. I think the verdict on Caiaphas was simply this. He didn't really listen. He wasn't prepared to give Jesus a moment's peace. He wasn't prepared to listen to him at all. Uh, it says in the, 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 the accounts uh, in John that uh, Caiaphas and Annas were also interested in two things when they questioned Jesus. First of all, his disciples, and second, his doctrine. They were interested in his disciples because they wanted to see just how much power he had. Who else was involved in this movement? If you were going to get rid of Jesus, then who else do you have to take out at the same time? And he was interested in his doctrine because what he wanted to do was get him to condemn himself out of his own mouth. He knew he had no... Uh, real evidence against Jesus. But if he could trip him up, if he could get him to say something that was blasphemous and wrong, then you could, you could catch him. You could put him to death. So he wasn't listening to anything that Jesus said. He was simply trying to make sure that he died. And it's possible, isn't it, for us never really to listen to Jesus. In Britain, there are lots of people who think they know about Jesus. They, they understand what Jesus was all about, but they've never really listened to They've never read the story. They've never looked at the, the, the words of Jesus. And even as followers of Jesus, it's possible for us not really to be listening to him. Do you remember Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration that we were talking about the other week? Um, uh, he gets so panicked. He says, oh, Lord, don't go away. Let's, let's get the three, three chambers built. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. 
traced up. And a voice comes out of a cloud and says, this is my son. Listen to him. (laughs) There's only one person to listen to, and that's Jesus. And so listening is important because Caiaphas never really listened. He never really knew what Jesus was about. What's the verdict on Herod Antipas? Well, I think the verdict on him is he didn't really care. He was worried about Jesus earlier on when Jesus seemed to be um, John the Baptist come back to life, going around teaching morality and honesty and integrity and all of those things that Antipas didn't stand for. Antipas was the, the wily guy who had uh, gone to stay with his, 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 his uh, stepbrother uh, and uh, gone away with his wife and married her. Um, divorced his original wife and did all sorts of things. And if you look at the career of Herod Arpas, he was not one of the great moral characters of history. He didn't care. He didn't care what Jesus had to say because as far as he was concerned, Jesus was somebody you could play with, somebody who was a curiosity, and he didn't really bother. Now, it's possible to, to, to be like that as a Christian too, isn't it? To keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. Maybe you listen to him, sufficient to be one of his followers but he never really takes over your life he's never in charge of anything you push him out to the edge and antipas is uh, it seems to me the judge who stands for those who really just don't care how about pontius pilate well i think the thing about pontius pilate is he didn't really decide <laughs> because it's possible to listen to jesus and to realise that if what he's saying is true, then it's the most important thing in the world and he's got to be central in your life. And yet never to make the decision you need to make to put him there on the throne in charge of your life. And only when Jesus becomes central to your existence, the Lord of life itself, does uh, uh, anything really start to happen. But Pilate never decided. And at the end when it was obvious that everybody wanted to crucify Jesus, he called for water. And out of Herod's palace, he brought a bowl of water and a towel. And he washed his hands in front of the crowd and said, I'm innocent of the death of this man. But you can't walk away from your responsibility as easily as that. He was responsible. He was still a judge. He had the responsibility of making a decision, and he made no decision whatsoever. He just allowed the crowd to have their way. He didn't really decide. And what we need to do if we're going to be successful in finding out what our life is supposed to be about, in living life to the full, is to put Jesus right at the heart of it. Jesus, the Son of God, the King of the news, and allow him uh, to uh, be in charge, to listen, and then to care, and then to decide. And that's where Hebrews chapter 12 comes in. Those verses are read. Written to Christians who are facing tough times. We'll never go through what Jesus went through because that was a complete one-off in history. Nobody else has ever suffered as Jesus did. But who nonetheless might follow in the steps of the Master and face really tough times. And what Hebrews chapter 12 says, remember, is this. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. How do you keep going? Well, you begin to realise that through all of these trials and difficulties that you face in life, God has a purpose for you. And chapter 12 goes on to say this. Endure hardship as discipline. God is trusting you as his children. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. And yet, it goes on to say, 
Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Celebrating harvest this morning. The way in which God brings out of the earth all the things we need to live life with. The way in which you see his goodness in what a natural system provides year on year with faithfulness and regularity. And God wants to put harvest not just in the fields, but in you and me as well. And the harvest of righteousness, as you find three times in the New Testament, the harvest of righteousness starts to appear when we look at the tough times and say, I'm going through them with Jesus. I'm going to make him my example, my mentor. I'm going to go where he went. And if that means I have to endure suffering and difficulty and hardship that I wouldn't face if I wasn't a Christian, I don't care. I'm going there anyway. And God will bring out of my life a harvest that would never grow otherwise. Let's just pray together, shall we? Let's put our hand back to Steve. Heavenly Father, as we look at what your son went through on those last few hours of his life, it staggers us that anybody would love us so much that he goes through that for us. And we thank you that he left us an example. And we can look to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, the one who endured all of the scorn and the hatred and the physical pain and, uh, and everything else that was involved there for us. Help us to listen to him. Help us to care about his place in our lives. And help us to decide this week again to renew our commitment and to follow him whatever it demands. We ask it for your name's sake. Amen.